two readings today, both from the New Testament. Firstly, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And our second reading from John chapter 8, verse 3. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. What do you think Jesus wrote in the dust? Any ideas? Yeah, that would get their attention, wouldn't it, Meryl? It would get my attention. Yeah, that's a possibility. Any other thoughts? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't there, so I don't know. So that's not a trick question. I have no idea. But I have looked uh, into some of the suggestions like we've got here today. Uh, and uh, later on in the message, I'll bring come back to that uh, second reading and see how it applies to the um, the message in Matthew, and maybe uh, what might have been there in the dust. Last year we began our uh, summer series, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and uh, we had a break for Christmas, we're getting back into it now. So last year we started with looking at the Beatitudes, Jesus gave the Beatitudes, now he's getting us to look at our attitudes. Okay. Last year we were with the Beatitudes, we were looking at how he took the society's values and morals, and he turns society's values and morals upside down. And he's saying, blessed are the weak, the meek, the um, humble, those who mourn for um, all the things happening in their lives. And now he takes the individual as this next passage, and he's going to turn us inside out. 
So rather than just looking at the external things we do, he's looking at the attitude of our hearts. And if you haven't been here for that series, or if you um, want a bit more of a reminder, there's a bit of a structure um, in that. When we look at uh, the start of the Sermon on the Mount, then the Beatitudes demonstrate what the character of believers should be. Then we have verses 13 to 16, where uh, Jesus teaches the function of believers. We're supposed to be God's spiritual light and salt. Okay, so he's taught us about the character, our characters should be. Now he tells us about the function. Now we get into the rest of the chapter. Verses 17 to 20 is like an introduction to what he's going to show next about our attitudes. And he introduces and teaches about the foundation for our inequalities, of the Beatitudes, and how we should function. And that foundation is God's law, or in fact, you could say God's word. Okay, so here he's about to say, let's have a look at God's law, his word. And um, at the time of Jesus, there would have been different ways of understanding what you meant when you said the law. In the narrowest form, you might have just meaning the Ten Commandments. Okay, that was the law. Um, but the Jewish people might also have meant the five books of Moses. Okay, the first five books in the Old Testament. Of course, it could also mean, and this is where the NLT, the version we read today, um, clarifies it. As Jesus pointing out, it's the entire scriptures. The Old Testament, which includes the um, law of Moses, the five books, the writings of the prophets and all the history. Okay, it tells us things and instructions. And it also gives us examples of what happens when they disobey or obey the word, the law of God. But also in Jesus' time, uh, the teachers of the law uh, tended to expand that. They talked about the rabbinical or the scribal traditions. This is what they had been adding to God's word. And the teachers of the law uh, would read through the law and then they decided to add further details to them. And it was like a burden they were placing on people's backs. It wasn't God's law. They were adding their own little decisions. Um, an example might be um, that they argued among themselves about God's law on the Sabbath. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough for them to think about what does the Sabbath mean. But they kept on adding more and more pressure on people. One example was that if you had an artificial leg, then it was uh, against the Sabbath to be ring it on that day. Um, which seems a little bit ludicrous to me. Um, but they had these little things, and they'd argue backwards and forwards and add more to the people of what they should be obeying. Well, as I say, um, Jesus is talking about God's law as God's word. And it's exciting today to know that we can look at all the scriptures, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament also reveals his instructions to us. And so when I uh, speak of the law today, I am talking about God's word. And Jesus is also the word, uh, and he's also the perfect demonstration of God's word. Uh, so we can, if we um, struggle to think about the term the law, think of it as God's word. And when the Jewish people looked at uh, the law, or God's word, um, they looked at it in three different stages. First of all, there was the moral law. That was the Ten Commandments. And Jesus fulfilled that. He's the only one who was able to live a perfect life and not to sin, to be absolutely sinless. 
And so he fulfills the moral law. There's a judicial law. That's the law of the land. So God had asked the Israelites to live in a certain way to set them apart um, so that other nations could look and would, it would foreshadow what God had um, to show Jesus coming, but also on how we should live. And then there was also the ceremonial laws. And these were laws of worship. Uh, again, they were put in place then to show the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who would accomplish and fulfill those laws. To give you some examples, we know that Aaron, uh, the high priest, was a temporary priest. Okay? But Jesus, uh, he died for us. He came back to life. He is the eternal high priest. He is there uh, for us now. Um, Adam's sacrifice was imperfect. He had to keep on giving the sacrifices. Uh, yet Christ's life and death was only, the only one time. He didn't have to do anything else. That was the one sacrifice which is perfect. You look at the tabernacle or the temple and you see different objects and pieces of the tabernacle uh, foreshadow who Jesus is. Um, it has a door. Jesus is the way. The Old Testament was inspired by Christ, and it is fulfilled by Christ. The law points to righteousness. It's not our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that gets us there. What is our attitude to God's law? Or better to phrase it, what is our attitude to God's word today? Do we consider some parts uh, more important than others? Do we think some parts more true than others? Uh, do we get into a trap of thinking it's okay to reinterpret scripture um, according to culture or society today. These are things that we need to consider and look carefully in his word to make sure that we uh, get it right. Do we restrict our understanding of God's word because we are sure that we are right or the other person's wrong? Everything about the law, God's word points towards Jesus and the salvation that he gives us. Uh, through his death and resurrection. So in these verses uh, from Matthew, Jesus uh, gives us three truths about the law. One is the reliability of God's word. Second, he talks about the relevance of God's word. And finally, he also talks about the reason or the purpose for God's word. So let's have a little look at that. The reliability of God's word. Uh, from verse 17... Uh, he says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Okay, the reliability of God's word it is um, absolute. We can measure any other law or belief by it. It's superior because it comes straight from God. It's not man-made, although we see with the Pharisees and even today mankind likes to add to it remove from it, reinterpret it, rather than just obey it. It's authored by God, it was affirmed by the prophets, and it's accomplished by Christ. And a trustworthy saying uh, I came across, when scripture is believed and obeyed, it protects us from errors. When scripture is believed and obeyed, it protects us from errors, from our own errors, our own misinterpretations, but also from other people saying something which might not quite fit in. In verse 18, he carries on talking about this reliability of God's word. He says, I tell you the truth. 
until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So God's, will, God's word will last. Not a single part of the scriptures will be lost from it. And it's exciting to know that God gives us a role in that permanency. Okay? There's a role he calls us. He asks us first to apply God's word to our lives. So we read it, we devote ourselves to it, and we apply it in how we would live. We're also called to defend God's word. And in this day and age, you don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed to stand up when someone says something opposite God's word and say, actually, God says this. This takes a bit of courage, uh, but it is what God calls us to do. And in doing so, we're called to proclaim God's word, to actually let other people know about it, what God has done in your life according to the Bible and what he has for them in their lives. Second, we have the relevance of God's word. And so Jesus carries on from seven, verse 17 to 18 and 19. He says, So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is a significant warning. We really do need to study the scriptures and make sure that we follow it as well as we can. Because scripture is given by God to man, nothing could be more relevant than the word of God to all mankind, to ourselves and also to those around us. So the law is relevant to those who believe in Christ because it does show the consequences of obeying or disobeying God's word. And then third, we have Jesus explaining the reason or the purpose for God's word, God's law. He says not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose or reason is achieved. And in verse 20 he says this, But I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The purpose of the law was to show that we would never be able to keep it ourselves. Amen. Yeah, amen to that, eh? Only Jesus has accomplished keeping the law. Amen. Romans and In Romans, Paul says, like Abraham, we are saved by faith, not works. The purpose of the law is to show that we ourselves cannot live up to the standard. The Pharisees are fooling themselves by only looking at the external treatment of the law and presuming that they could even fool God by their outward appearance. You know, as long as they did not murder a person, it didn't matter how much they hated the person. As long as they didn't get caught stealing, they could justify what they were doing and treat others and the property of others any way they liked. That was the external presentation they were showing but not the heart attitude that they need, required. So in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches that God's first concern is with the heart, not just with the external manifestations of our presentation of it. This applies to the church and our religious ceremonies and our prayers when we come together and our fasting and our attending church and worshipping God and all these external elements of our faith God does look much deeper and looks at the condition and attitude of our heart to him and to each other as individuals, but also as a whole church. 
So Jesus warns us of external obedience when it's just a show, when we know this is what we should do, but we don't take it to our depths of our hearts. And it is nullified if we don't begin with heart obedience. He speaks of um, and warns us of partial, incomplete obedience when we obey to a certain distance or an area that suits us. In Revelation, the church of Sardis uh, was told, I know your deeds, but they're not complete yet. Wake up. And so for me, I also look and think, are there things which I have kept incomplete, things I need to uh, continue and persevere in to obey Jesus in fullness? There's a redefined obedience. We redefine God's word to suit our own opinions and the way of living. Uh, society these days uh, does that a lot. And it's nothing new. The Pharisees um, in the time of Jesus uh, looked at verses like uh, Leviticus 11. Be holy as I am holy. And they decided that if you followed a certain ceremonial law and kept it, that made you holy. Okay, But that's not what Jesus's or God's law is saying. Hard obedience again. And then self-centered obedience, similar to the external obedience. This is where we do things that make us proud or satisfied in ourselves. Okay? Righteousness can only come from Jesus. The one who demands perfect righteousness gives perfect righteousness. Later on in Matthew, in chapter 19, we'll hear Jesus say, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are, are possible. Matthew 19, verse 26. So as we challenge ourselves, we're looking at our attitudes over the next few weeks with the Sermon on the Mount, we need to make sure we don't fall into two extremes. One is being proud of our self-righteousness and forgetting that it's only Jesus who saves. It's only through his perfection that we can come to God. But the other extreme is also losing hope because we look at this and we think, there's no way I can keep this up. I've failed again and again. And we forget that Jesus is our hope. Okay, so we need to keep our eyes set on Jesus in both extremes and look to see what he has for us today. The challenge in this passage today is to begin with what is our attitude to God's word? What do we demonstrate, not simply physically, but in our attitude within our heart? So how does John 8 tie into this? Let's consider this for a moment. The Pharisees brought this woman caught in adultery to see Jesus, to see if he would follow the law of Moses and stone her. That's what the law required. It was in God's scriptures. First of all, as many of you will know, the teachers of the law had set this up. This was not just a setup, it was breaking laws just to try and trap Jesus. First of all, there should have been two in front of Jesus if uh, this was going to be an accusation. And there's no mention of witnesses. And so really what we see, and Jesus could see, was the attitude in their hearts. They wanted to catch Jesus out. They were challenging God by contesting God's justice and mercy in the form of his son. It's interesting to note that here they are breaking the rules, their own rules and the laws of God as well, um, to try and catch someone out, to try and deceive and to um, harm Jesus. The same method and attitude they'd use to put him on a cross. 
So what did Jesus write in the sand? And why did Jesus act this way? There's some possibilities. We heard two very good answers today, and both are probably there and correct. I'd like to suggest this little um, aspect I've been looking into. Uh, first of all, the high priest and these ones who brought uh, the woman accused should have brought her into the temple, and the high priest would have had some witnesses. There would have been two people there being accused, and it would have written in the dust, okay, the accusation. Um, so Jesus right, probably starts fulfilling the role of the high priest there, which they had abused. And he could have written the Ten Commandments. He could have also written um, Jeremiah 17, verse 13, which you'll know of by heart, I'm sure. Um, I'll read it to you in case. Uh, this is something which the high priest often, um, a year of atonement, uh, they would come and they'd write it on, in the dust of the temple. And as he called it out and as people knew he was doing that, they were called to repent. It says this, Jeremiah 17, verse 13. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So it was something that they would expect to see, and it may have reminded them about what they were doing in their act. Uh, and like Merrill, I suspect when he stoops down a second time, he may have been writing their names and accusations um, when he has said to them, he is without sin, cast the first stone. We don't know. Uh, it's something worth exploring and pondering on. Whatever he wrote, it made the teachers of the law respond by walking away. One at a time, the elders, the most respected first, and then the younger ones. If Jesus were writing their sins in the dust, then their response, as would have been the case with the high priest, would have been or should have been to repent. But the attitudes of their hearts were hardened against God and they'd rather walk away in their stubborn attitudes than seek forgiveness. Why didn't the woman choose to skedaddle with all the rest as they had gone? Perhaps it was because here was a woman who recognised her sin. She knew she was condemned, that she was guilty, and her attitude was that of repentance. And Jesus, who is the only one present who could lawfully condemn her, the only one qualified to throw the stone, chose to forgive her. He said to her she was forgiven. She, he tells her to change her ways and not to continue to sin, knowing that her sin of adultery still had to be punished by the law and therefore goes on to die for her on the cross, for her sins and for yours and for mine. The only way that we can be saved. What attitude do we have to God when we meet together? When we go about our individual lives, what attitude do we have to God's word? Over the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, let's earnestly look towards attitudes in our lives, both as individuals but also as a church, that may need to change. If we find that challenging at times, let's not ignore the challenge. And let's not become hopeless in our situation, but instead let's encourage one another in brotherly love knowing that faith in Jesus is the way to salvation. Let me just read to you um, the core of worship one more time from Romans 8, 3-4. The law of Moses was unable to save us 
because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law will be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice you gave. Amen. Yeah. To us, we read of it in your word, and Lord, we thank you. We know we cannot hold on to the law, and we're not, we know that the purpose of it was to bring us to you, to see who you are, the Son of God. Lord, we just ask uh, today and over the weeks ahead, let your Holy Spirit come. Let it really set a, a kindling flame in our hearts. If there are things that we need to consider, that we need to ask for forgiveness, an attitude we need to change, then Lord, help us to do that. Help us not to feel hopeless when we fail, because we will, but knowing that you give us strength, that you save us. So again, Lord, I ask your Holy Spirit comes and that as we long to serve you, as we understand your word more, people around us would look, they'd see you and your work and would want to come and praise your name and commit their lives to you too. In Jesus' name, amen.